Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today's guest is James Rassone. James is the Amazon Top 100 Bestselling Author of Military Thriller and Science Fiction Stories, and I've read in both genres there, and I'm hard-pressed to say which one I like better, but we're going to get into that over the next hour. He's an Iraq War veteran who served three and a half years in a combat zone as a military interrogator and contractor. Now, I listened to Monroe Doctrine, and just yesterday completed Into the Stars. So I feel I'm up to speed on your writing now, James, so welcome. It's good to, good to be with you, and it's great an opportunity to talk with you guys and share some insights to the aspiring writers and listeners who want to know more. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. I love, I've done lots of interviews with uh, writers and artists who have either been team writers or, in one case, with Leo and Diane Dillon, um, as a husband and wife team, and she just, uh, Diane, her husband passed away uh, several years ago, but uh, she wrote an, an essay for this year's Writers of the Future called The Third Artist, and how they independently were amazing artists, but working together, it was a third, they had to have agreements and stuff like that, what to do, and that became like the third artist. So I guess to begin with, so you're a, a military writer and science fiction which came first? Well, I originally started writing in the, the military thriller side. That's where I originally started out with. And then I've always been an avid sci-fi reader, though. I've, I've enjoyed that. I like that genre. Um, and I just, I just hadn't, I didn't start writing it. When I first got into writing, everyone says, write what you know and know what you write. And at the time, I really did like reading um, military thrillers. And I honestly wasn't seeing what I wanted to read. Yeah. And that's when they included me, well, why don't I write the kinds of books I want to read? And that's kind of how it took off. That's amazing. Now, like I said in the, in the intro there, you've got three and a half years military in the Iraq war. So now, is that your full stint in the military? Or were you already 20 years in the military leading up to that three and a half years and then been there, done that, and then went to become a writer? Yeah, so when I was 18, um, like most 18-year-olds, I didn't know what I wanted to do with life, uh, kind of floundering around a little bit after graduating high school. And I originally was looking at joining the Marines, and lo and behold, they were out to lunch. So I started talking with an Army recruiter. And at the time, my uncle was in So literally out to lunch. Yeah, literally out to lunch. (laughs) For me, my uncle was also a um, a full-time National Guardsman. Uh, So he worked full-time at the Army. That was his his full-time job. And he started telling me about the guard. And he says, you know, why don't you just, why don't you join uh, this unit here? Because uh, th- this way you can at least get your college paid for and pursue that. And if you still want to become, uh, go full-time military, then you can go as an officer because you'll finish your college. And I thought that was a good, good idea, good suggestion. So that's the route I went. So my first six years in the military, I joined the Wisconsin Army National Guard um, in 90, 1996. And that allowed me to... Uh, pursue and, and taste the, the military if I wanted to, to go that route full-time, while at the same time finishing my college and, and being able to get it paid for. And then when I was doing a semester in uh, Munich, Germany during 9-11, uh, that's when you know the, the terrorist attacks happened. I was in Munich at the time when that happened. And that kind of like rechanged my focus. I decided I wanted to go full-time um, when I finished college at, at that point. And so I should have. I didn't go army. Go figure. I decided to swap over, and I went to Air Force instead. And then that led me down. A, you know, I was in the Air Force for four years and went into the interrogation route. And then I got out and proceeded to continue working in government, though, for many years afterwards. Got it. So, at what point did the writing bug fully envelop you? Oh man! So the first time I ever conceived writing a book, it actually wasn't necessarily about fiction. Um, I was in the interrogation training course at Fort Huachuca, and I joked with some of my, my fellow airmen. I was like, you know, I'm going to write a book about this. And they were like, no, you're not. No, don't you dare. You know, it's a common phrase. And when I was in the war, I, I kept a, a journal of what was going on just as a decompression way for me to remember things and, you know, have something to tell my, my kids when I get older. And when I came home, I decided, you know what, why don't I turn this journal into a book? And so we... We, we wrote the first book was Dinner with a Terrorist and published that with a, a small imprint um, who we thought was great and would do everything for us. They did not. Um, and many years, we just kind of gave up on it. 
And then I got really got serious into writing when I was talking with one of the, the VA counselors and she was telling me, you know, you like reading. Um, you do a lot of writing with, with Oxford because I was in graduate school at the time at Oxford. And she suggested, you know, why don't you look at writing? It's great therapy and just start doing that. And so that kind of born the idea of writing books that I would want to read and moving in that direction. And then I discovered Kindle, you know, Kindle Unlimited and be able to publish things through that, that Amazon platform in 2015. And that's when we published our first book was December 31st of 2015. And your first book was? Our first book was um, was called uh, Prelude to World War III. Um, I looked at it and said, well, you know, how do you, what, what would a war of the future look like in the 2030s? And that's kind of what we, we kind of went with that direction. So then when you went into and wrote the Monroe Doctrine, mm-hmm. so, so that was, where was that in the, in the scheme of your writing journey? So that, that, that's my current series right now. That's what I'm, I'm currently writing in that series. We just released the fifth book in that series uh, this past Friday. I've got uh, at least two more on deck for it. Um, I might do a, a, an eighth book. It really depends on how the story kind of develops and how well we can close things off in, in the, the remaining two books. Because I've learned as an author over time, I'm not going to restrict myself and say, I have to finish this series in X number of books, or I want to make it just string on forever. You never want to do either of those things. You want the story to come to a natural conclusion that leaves a satisfactory um conclusion for all parties, or uh-huh. as close to that as you can. And that's what I'm really uh, striving to achieve with this, this novel, this series. Yeah, so now that brings up the point then, because so I read Monroe, volume one of Monroe Doctrine. So that, that takes place in the, is it the 2020s or is it 2040s? Yeah, 2020s. 2020s. Yeah. Now you've also got in the 2040s, there's another war? Well, this was a different series, so that was a completely different series. When we okay, that's when I... Yeah, no, I've like, got five series that are going on. You know, I, I'm quite a prolific writer, and so we just, you know, we, we work our way through them, and each series tends to be more of a, of a, a forward-looking cautionary tale of what could or couldn't happen and just kind of wargaming it out, so to speak. Yes, because when I, when I then, when I asked you, so what should I read on, on science fiction? And uh, so then you... You know, gave me to uh, to read yeah, into the stars. Yeah. Into the, yeah, sorry. When you gave, had me read into the stars, you refer you referred back to the World War Three, which I thought was a series. I was the first one I was reading, and Monroe Doctrine. But then there was another one in between because you're talking about the 2040s. Yeah, that was a, that our first one. Yep, yep. We, we've gone that scenario and route quite a few times, just really looking at how do these things occur. You know, they we stumble into wars all throughout history. Mm-hmm. But if you really research it, you look back at military history, it looks like you're stumbling into it, but there's always a lot of precursors that led to it. And if we can get good at identifying what some of those things are, then perhaps we can find better ways to avoid those things happening. And so that's kind of how I look at it and say, okay, well, looking at this mentally, where do I see things um, happening and occurring? Yeah, that's that's interesting because when I read the first book, I was like, "Whoa, this is intense." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was intense. Yeah. Both of them are intense that I read, but then, then I really got what you're trying to do. There is give like a worst case scenario and just give you this is something that you know. Look at guys, this could actually happen, and here's something you can look at and decide. Let's avoid this. Let's do something now to prevent this scenario from, from happening. It seems right. like what you're really trying to do there. Exactly. When I, when I was working um, for U.S. European Command in Stuttgart, Germany for a number of years in the early 2010s, um, one of the sections that, I, that was in our intel group was called Deep Futures. And one of the things they would look at is future conflicts. You know, what are the things, the technologies, the, the issues, the things we're going to need to be concerned about in 20 and 30 and 40 years from now that are gonna impact us now. So we should start looking at um, strategies, that different things we could put in place to um, address or mitigate those things. You know, whether it's uh, population demographics, you know, aging population means you have a finite window to accomplish militarily your objectives um, that you want to do, or it's resources, 
And that's not always like oil. Everybody thinks about energy and oil, but one of the actual bigger resources to worry about is, is actually water and arable land for crop growing. And so where are those kinds of conflicts uh, going to likely take place and how do you mitigate that? How do you prevent that kind of stuff? Yeah, it was, um, I was fascinated in, in, your, in the different way that things played out in your, you know, in the Monroe Doctrine. And uh, you also, I mean, you write, um, you end the novel, you sort of tie it up, but you mostly leave a cliffhanger that makes you, oh gosh, now what? So you definitely pull something along. So you, you take a long story and you break it into, as you're developing it, in, into the segments that can start, change, and stop. But then it obviously, okay, so now what? So then you have to read the next one. So you've got that, especially for me, the last one I just finished uh, listening to, Into the Stars, it was like, oh man, I... Because <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> like I, I already read a lot, you know, and so now I have to prepare for the next podcast. I'm getting ready right now. I'm interesting enough. I'm reading my life as a ten year old boy, getting ready to interview Nancy Cartwright, who's the voice of Bart Simpson, okay. and that whole thing there. So um, it's a way different story. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and some writers like to write where it is one large book, and and, and that's it. I'm not opposed to that kind of writing, and I read a lot of books like that. For me, I like to tell really big stories that, are, that have a lot of complex layers to it and, and essentially create like an onion. So every book we're unraveling more and more layers to the onion until eventually we, we, we get that conclusion. And when we're looking at what we've written with the Monroe Auction series where we're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and the automation of warfare and the different geopolitical angles and things that are happening, you can't tell that kind of a story in any you know, level of detail in a singular book. Um, Unless it's really big. By, yeah, by allowing yourself the opportunity to, to write in a series, you're, you're, able to create, you're able to create that situation where we can unravel this. We can see this whole thing played out. Like, what does it mean when we move to using um, autonomous combat aircraft in, in future warfare. How will that revolutionize the battlefield? And one of the big concerns is you're making warfare more and more detached from humanity, detached from the operators and what's going on. Yeah, and, depersonalized. Yeah, it blurs the lines. That's a very big concern. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now your writing process. I'm fascinated with how you write with your wife and like I mentioned at the outset, I've done some interviews with, uh, with writing teams. And then even A.G. Riddle, you know, with his, I mean, his wife doesn't write Ann Riddle, but A is Ann and G is Jerry, um, their, their writing team. And she, these have dis distinctive hats that they do. But now you with your, with your wife, how does that work? Well, at first it was very complicated. I won't lie and say there was easy. There was a lot of bumps <laughs> on the roads and a lot of arguments and fights. And eventually we settled down and came to a, a resolution of, okay, this is what I'm really good at. This is what you're really good at. Let's focus on those areas, delineate those lines, and then let's execute and move forward. So on my end, I really handle the content creation, the research, the writing, and I just go with it there. And when I finished the book, I hand it off to Miranda and then she'll go in it and she, she'll she add in different aspects to the characters and personalities. She may write, I may have specific scenes I ask her to write or characters. And then she kind of helps to cinch all that together and helps make sure that I'm not being too verbose in my uh, my writing and helps me be a little more concise because I sometimes will explain too much and she'll take what I explained and chop it down to three sentences. That's like, oh, okay, I guess it works too. Um, and I just didn't see it, but she's really good at that. And then yeah. while she's doing that though, I'm already working on the subsequent book in the series. So I don't have to slow down. My mind just continues to stay in the story while she works on, on that piece. And then when she's done, it goes to our editor. And then I hand off book two and then Miranda starts on book two. The editor has book one and I'm on book three. And it's literally a production cycle. And once the cycle's really going, as long as we don't have any major hiccups, it just stays rolling. And it's, it's going to a pace now where I've written at this point 26 books, I think. So my drafts are substantially better. 
um, than what they were a while ago. So now we're actually reversed a little bit where the book goes from me directly to the editor, then from the editor back to Miranda, and then Miranda handles all of the, the developmental, conceptual development editing from, from our editor, tightens everything thing up, and then it goes back to the editor for a second round. And she handles that whole piece while I continue to work on creating the next books. But that was a five-year process to get to that evolution. And once we've reached that, that actually shortened our production time probably by about uh, six to eight weeks, which means instead of struggling to, to, to get you know, three and four books a year out, which is still great, mm -hmm. uh, we're now actually able to, to pick up probably between a fifth and sixth book. Um, but again, it's because we have a, a whole study pipeline of these things coming. It wasn't an overnight thing. It was years of building and, and getting it going and, and just having a steady pipeline of books that are in various stages of construction and writing and editing and then just staying on top of everything. I get it. So then on your um, writing, because you've got military thriller, you've got science fiction, those are the two I'm familiar with, and perhaps you've got more now as well. Stick with those, just those. <laughs> okay, so... Do you have any problem uh, like sw switching gears, or is it a matter of switching gears? Uh, no, I do have problems with switching gears. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, this is uh, the the, the sci-fi series is my first endeavor into into that realm, so it, it is a little bit, bit of a struggle there. So what I found works is like right now I just finished Monroe Doctrine book five, so I'd written four and five. I've paused now that series, and now I'm spending essentially the next six months where I'm gonna be working on the sci-fi series. And so what I'll do is I'll go back and I'll either read the previous book we just published to get my mindset back into that realm again, look mm -hmm. at the draft and outline to make sure we're still moving, moving along, and then I roll right into the next book, and then I stay in that world for at least two books. If I have time, I'll do a third. Before I pause again, um, I make sure I have a long enough pre-order to cover the distances, and then I, I roll back to the, to the thriller side and. I repeat that process and, and kind of make that work. I get it. Now, your science fiction definitely has thriller, you know, oh, yeah. throughout yeah. it. You yeah. definitely are like, you know, I got to turn the okay, so what happens now? And then when I saw the ending coming, okay, I said, okay, here it's coming. It's, yep, that's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we are the masters of being able to do that because what we've learned with Amazon is they allow you to set up pre-orders, which is great. Now, there was a time when Amazon made it only 90 days, and that was rough. Um, they've now extended that to a year, which makes it a lot more manageable. So when we conclude book one or book two, we always make sure that the, the pre-order for the next book is up. And then that link is in the end of the ebook. Um, and what that, doubt, what that allows you to do as a self-published author is it allows you to hopefully carry the reader over from one book to the subsequent book, which as a, an indie writer, you know, we have to handle all the marketing ourselves. So you've got to think cleverly, how do I manage that? How do I grow uh, my readership base while retaining my existing readers? This is the critical strategy to making that work. And then when a series ends, having book one of the new series, that pre-order link ready to go is also critically important because then you transition the reader from one series and they roll right into the next series. Got it. But now you've got like three series going? I have, two, I have two active series that I'm going. And then about two years ago, because I got into writing as a you know, PTSD therapy, um, I, I started wondering how else can I help other vets get into this? And so two years ago, my wife and I decided that we would take on a couple of, of military vets and mentor, mentor them in becoming a writer and being able to eventually create a business that they can uh, run full-time and be able to support them and their families and allows them to to work around those good and bad days and, and be able to, to still do that and have a a good life to to support your family with, not have to, you know. Otherwise, you just really struggle. And they, they do have some good options for, for helping you with this, but a lot of the options are unfortunately also going to leave you, your head in a bit of a cloud sometimes. And yeah. That makes working full-time very challenging because I struggle with that a lot. But your creative juices are definitely flowing. Um, so now on, since the book I just finished, Into the Stars, your uh, aliens that you come up with, they're nine feet tall, and they're serious badass. I mean, they're like mega. Um, it was interesting. I 
One of the uh, books that the author that I published, L. Ron Hubbard, wrote is called Battlefield Earth. Yeah. And it's, it, that type of stuff is very similar to the Cyclos, which are the, the big badass aliens of, of that, of that uh, novel. Have you, are you familiar with that book? I am familiar with the book, and I've also seen the, the movie a number of years ago when it came out. Um, I, I liked it. I liked the approach. I liked the angle and how they did that. Yeah. I think if I... So this series that I wrote is kind of a, a conglomeration of several several things that are sci-fi related. For me, I was a huge when I was in Iraq and shortly after, um, I was really big into a, 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 an MMO game called Eve Online, and that was a really cool interactive sandbox of just space and being able to have you know businesses and military alliances and fighting. It was a lot of fun to play with people from all over the world. I enjoyed that, so I derived. I found some creative um, relevance from there uh, for the series. And then I also kind of liked some of the aspects of, uh, of Battlestar Galactica and looking at, at, at that and, you know, the Star, Stargate SG-1 series and, and just a handful of these things. To me, all of that was amazing to see all that and say, you know, what elements can I pull from different things and how can I make it better or unique or more applicable to say the 2090s, the 20, early 2021s, because that's where our series takes place. I mm -hmm. didn't want to do this, you know, two, 3,000 years in the future. I want it to be somewhat near term where we are going to have um, reference points. You know, it's pretty safe to say we're probably going to have SpaceX or something along those lines in Blue Origin around in 2090. That's not that mm -hmm. far away when you think about it. We're talking right. 20, or what, uh, you know, that's Plus, 70 years for 2090. Yeah, you know, we're not talking very far away. So right. these will likely be still around and involved, and we can relate to that. And as a reader, the more things you can create that people kind of relate to and associate, identify with, the more they kind of go, oh, I, I get that. Yeah, I understand that. And, and they have those immediate reference points, and it's, it's so much easier for them to get involved and dive right into it. Yeah, because you've got some stuff that you put in there, of like Monroe Doctrine, you've got like the offering all the Skynet for free, you know, but why that was done, you know, what's, what's, what's on the other side of that one? The reason why it's done. There's a reason why it's done. It's like Facebook. Facebook's free. You yeah. think what they're able to do with the information that you are willing to put on there, they are able to repackage and market and sell for substantial sums of money. It's same yeah. with Google. When you use a Google, when you're using Google, you exact same thing, um, all that stuff. It's not free. It's, it's, giving them the ability to collect information they can repackage and sell to marketers, you know, so that's, that's what it all comes down to. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously all the, uh, the AI, what, how that's all going and mm -hmm. your greatest fears. And Elon Musk makes his comments about it right now, you know, his fears of, of letting AI go unchecked and you take it where it is not checked, you know, and what happens. We have to anticipate that no matter, the, we all come up with these great intentions. We have good intentions for doing this project or that project. And that's wonderful. And, that, and that's what we should all strive for and why we should move forward in those things. But we also can't discount the fact that, you know, man is a depraved creature. And there are going to be individuals who will use this technology and as an, as an exploit, whether it's to create unheard of wealth for themselves while fleecing the consumer and everyone else or it's to consolidate and grab power. And mm -hmm. we don't know which way that goes, and that's dependent on who is in control of what at what times. And right. AI is gonna be no different, and either is automation and everything else. And so I think it's kind of neat for us to explore that and talk about that and just give people an insight as to what could happen. Yeah, it's, um, that, was, that was very like, um, wow. It really makes one look at it and just, at the beginning, it was just horrific. And then just looking at it and just, okay, I see what I'm tracking with this now. And now it'll be a lot easier to address the rest of the books here because it was, it's, it's such a, a raw look at what could actually happen. And the fact is, when you got AI, it does not have inherently any yeah. sense of morality, any sense of compassion. It's, right. it's all a program trait or not. Yeah, it is about objectives. You've given it a task to complete a task. And mm -hmm. that task results in the death of one person, no people, or a million people. It doesn't really matter to the machine. All it sees is a task. And so it's devoid of that, which makes it the ultimate, you know, the ultimate killing machine, if you will. 
but it's mm -hmm. also a very scary future if that kind of stuff evolves unchecked and isn't even thought about or discussed. And I think the more we, more books that come out, the more movies that come out that discuss this, that talk about it, it starts to seed ideas where we begin to question, is this really the route we want to go? Or if it is, how do we built in safeguards to ensure we don't end up in that kind of a future? Yeah, but like in your book, you've also got, in the Monroe Doctrine, you've also got this naive concept that, no, 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 it won't happen to me, it won't happen to us, no, it's, that's not going to happen, because you become so uh, channel-visioned on what you see as going to be the outcome of this that you don't look at other possibilities. Okay. Or worse, we don't consider the second and third order effects of decisions, and that's a big thing that we always put in a lot of the books is, if when you do X, Y is going to happen and then Z is going to happen next. And when we make decisions and we don't think about the consequences of those decisions, they have ripple effects. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to you know, discuss the whole, you know, the, the Ukraine war and situations going on there, but there are consequences to sanctions. And we are starting to see those consequences where, you know, Lebanon had just, you know, talked about having food insecurity and being in a food crisis before the end of May. Well, that's, a, that's the first domino to fall in this whole, you know, the, the whole sanctions regime. So you know, decisions have consequences. Um, yeah. It may be well-intended and we may support that, but we also have to acknowledge there are going to be consequences to those and are we ready for them and did we contemplate them before we institute them? And so I like to put that in a lot of the books and what we're talking about, what we're doing. It's interesting that you mentioned that because we recently had our Writers of the Future uh, Awards Gala for volume um, 38, and our keynote speaker was Lieutenant General uh, J.T. Thompson, USAF. He just retired, um, but he was one of the ones instrumental in creating the Space Force. And he, when he spoke, he talked about specifically the importance of science fiction writers for this very reason. He said, you know, we have our own concepts of, what's, of what needs to be done and what the outcome will be, but we need you to look at all the different angles that we wouldn't necessarily see right. on a decision. We need to have those other perspectives that we won't have. And it's interesting because a lot of the um, authors of the golden age were themselves in World War II. They were um, uh, rocket scientists of, you know, at the, in the middle of the 20th century, developing a lot of what, of what became known now as, as the Air Force and what led to... Um, the rocketry going into space, and they're the ones who had the ear of Washington, D.C. at that time period because they went in like, what do we do? Where do we go? What, what are the various alternates that we have to, to deal with? And I know that um, Owen Hubbard and Robert Heinlein and a few others met after World War II as Korea was beginning to escalate and potentially was going to lead to an to immediate Third World War. Yeah. And... They said, we need to do something. They started writing science fiction to create a space race. Because yeah. at that point, the arms race was really heating up. And so they created a space race to get man's attention off of fighting each other instead of um, let's tackle the unknown out there as something that we could all go to um, agree with. And what you did in your book, of, uh, Into the Stars, it did just that. You know, yeah. it just... We just finished, you know, and it was like still all this conflict you had at that point in the three basic governments on Earth, but there was still this animosity and that tension was always there. But then when this came up as a bigger foe than any of their own internal conflicts, they then were all able to unite. Yeah. yeah. And then I have to read book two. But otherwise... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by design. That's how it works. But yeah, no, you're right. And that's you know that's the whole unique thing. And that's one of the things that I, I wish as a country and as as humanity we could we could come together around these these massive projects that that could really propel us forward. You know, Elon Musk talks about going to Mars and being able to move forward in that direction. Right. Imagine if we had a 1960s era, you know style man to the moon race, and we were able to come up with some sort of national program like that, that focused on establishing the, the gas station on the moon we need, the orbital infrastructure we need to build the ships, and getting out to Mars, and put our focus and attention on there instead of divisive issues that we end up getting cycled into all the time. 
and find commonalities. Those are all things that we can come together and agree on, even if we disagree on everything else, we can come together on something like this. And that's how we start to bridge the divides between between different people. And we, we, we move forward in a much more, a much better way, I suppose. Yeah. You put together, you establish an accord in your book that worked out how, you know, as plants were, dis- habitable plants were discovered, yeah. who was able to claim rights to that versus when they had to be in a, in a serious system, when they had to be shared, you know? Um, yeah, it's interesting because... The Treaty, we come up with where everyone shares technology that they develop to collectively work together for, for a common good. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There's a um, Conquest of Space series that, that Hubbard wrote in the, in the 40s and 50s about how it was actually finally uh, accomplished, and it was through privatization... You know, that's where you got your Elon Musk and your Jeff Bezos and the other companies that actually went out there and, and took the bull by the horns and actually and made it happen. And there, his, the organization which handled assigning of, of discovered planets was the Explorers Club because it was non, because he was a member of, he was, he was one of the more storied members of the Explorers Club and it wasn't political. So yeah. they could then work out, and they kept all the registry there. So when somebody discovered a planet, then it would be registered to that that country as they went out there. So it was because being non political nature, they could do that, and there went there was no favoritism on that. Yeah, obviously that didn't happen, but uh, or at least it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't yet. It's going to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm just curious: have, Are you familiar with any of, of Hubbard's uh, fiction works? Like I say, I read the Battlefield Earth one a while back, and so yeah. I enjoyed that um, and seeing seeing how he created the world. Um, yeah. He, what I like to do is I like to read different authors and and just try to figure out how do they how do they come up with this? What what do they use to describe you know an alien creature? How do you describe a planet that we've never been to and seen? Because it's very difficult to describe something you one have never seen before, but then actually put it into um, into a book format that makes sense, that people right. readily identify with and visualize it in their own mind, and then you'll be able to move forward with that, that story, with that idea in mind. And that's a never-ending learning process as a writer, is figuring it out, and you got to find writers who are very good at that and then try to dissect, well, how do they do this? What do they do? So that requires reading a broad spectrum of writers in, in different genres, and I... It, to, to get these, these different ideas. Yeah, it was interesting. I recently interviewed Hugh Howie, and he talk, he read Balthorth eight times because it's just it's one of his favorite science fiction stories. And um, Brandon Sanderson, when I interviewed him a while ago, it talked about it was just the action, you know, being able to pick up the action. And Kevin Anderson, who also, he's very well known for all the Doom prequels. And there was the short sentences versus the long sentences to create Correct. that pacing. Correct. You know, some of the ways that these that the old masters used to do to, to create pacing and how you can slow story down with making this, the sentences and paragraphs longer than make them short again. And just like, just like, <laughs> yes. you know, as you're getting through the, the story because the action is so intense. And you've really, you know, you've developed that well. And like I said, by the end of the, the first book, you know, Monroe Doctrine, I said, okay, good. He's, you've got, you know, you really got your pacing going on that. Mm-hmm. But I realized I'm doing a podcast on Rise of the Future, so I need to read some science fiction too. So I wrote to you saying, so what do you got science fiction? And then you said, Into the Stars. Okay, good. Switch it's gears, like going to that one there. <laughs> and I got two series I'm stuck in the middle of, and then not, I wouldn't say that stuck. I was just like, I'm totally in the middle of that. I realized, okay, now what? Now what? So you've yeah. done an amazing yeah. job of that. So on the, um, Rise of the Future podcast, I'm always looking for tips and suggestions yep. and, you know, for the aspiring writer. So you said you've already w- worked out and helping other um, military, but just in general for aspiring writer, whether it's uh, military fiction or science fiction, because you say, which I can totally see with your military fiction, write what you love and love what you write, you know, um, science fiction, it's a little bit harder to do that by the very nature of being science fiction. It depends how much science you want to put into it. Correct. Yeah. 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 So look, please explain that a little bit more on your own process of writing of how much is based on your own experience versus going to library research versus talking to 
to buddies? So for me, a lot of my writing tends to be based on, on personal experiences that I've, I've been to. I've been very fortunate in the jobs that I've held in the past. I've, you know, I've worked as a, a staff officer, um, you know, with a U.S. European Command and Special Operations Command. I've been, you know, in the interrogation level and directing, you know, Tier 1 and Tier 2 assets to go hit objectives. So, I mean, I've been able to see that full spectrum. And whether I'm writing a a sci-fi or a military thriller, the writing style is essentially the same. It's just the timeline, the time frame of when these takes place and the technology involved is what's different. But the methodology of how I write is, is, is still the same. So when mm-hmm. you're crafting any kind of series or books, the characters have got to be absolutely believable. So that means you need to take your, your head and put your, your POV, your point of view, has to be in that character's point of view. So if you write a Russian character, they have to be... Russian perspective, everything. And same with an American, same with whatever the character is you're trying to choose. Um, and I think that's one of the, the critical pieces that authors uh, and aspiring authors need to need to figure out, need to understand. You've got to make it authentic because when things are authentic and that's when they become very real and that's when readers really grab onto it. And then as you mentioned earlier, pacing. Pacing is very good. Uh, there's a book written uh, by Matthew Jockers called The Best Seller's Code. And I thought that was one of the, the best books I've read about the craft of writing. Because when it comes to craft, um, a book is essentially, it has a heartbeat, okay? So it's, it's like an EKG. It has your ups, your downs, your ups, your downs. And you want to have those spaced out where you have enough of an opportunity for a reader to catch their breath before you take them on the next either high or low in the roller coaster. And when you pace those things out between, usually it's about every nine to 13% of a book. That's what gets you that, that super fast paced book that people just have to keep turning the pages. And then on, I was listening on masterclass.com. It's another, ask, another resource I used to. I was listening to uh, David Baldacci talking and he very clearly articulates that the last paragraph or two of a chapter has to be really that, that that hook that grabs the reader and causes them to want to turn the page next to find out what happened. And in those first par- those, the first paragraph or two in the next chapter have to likewise suck them in. And when you can create that, it just goes over and over and over again. And before you mm-hmm. know it, they've, they've spent 12 hours reading the book and they're done. And of course it took you five months to write it or four months to write it, but they read it in a day or two. And that's yeah. create a compelling, uh, bestseller, and when you do this in a series, they end up burning through the whole series, and, and that's how you make it a sustainable support, uh, business because you know you got to keep selling books. That's right. You absolutely need to do that. So, on um, what you had to overcome yourself as an author to to get that, you know, because not everybody starts off okay, good. I'm going to write myself a book, and here we go. You know, it's hard. <laughs> Ta-da! Not that easy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it really requires a lot of discipline at, at, at first because you have to understand that whether this is full-time or it's a hobby, you have to understand you've got to create a schedule, you've got to create an outline. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a strict, you know, paragraph-by-paragraph paragraph outline of what your book is, but you need to know what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve. And right. you've, got to, you've got to stay disciplined in what it is you're doing and then just stick to it. Um, if you stick with it long enough, you're going to, you're going to finish the book. But if you allow perfection to paralyze your ability to complete it, then it may never get done. So you have to find a bit of a balance. And I think that's something that you learn in time and it does come with. But at the end of the day, you've got to decide that this is what I want to achieve. This is what I want to do. You know, when you go to college and it is tough, you have to say, I want to be here and I want to do this. And when you make that decision, things just start to fall in line. It doesn't make it easy but it does give you that grit you need to get through it. Same thing, right. people that do marathons or Ironmans, you know, they have to determine, I'm gonna do this. And I think that's where a lot of my military training has helped me because it kind of taught me that mentality of developing inch stones, okay? I don't need to write the whole book today. What I do need to focus on is I need to focus on writing one page or two pages or one scene. And when you create small inch stones, they become very easy to achieve. And as you start to achieve more and more and more, it builds a lot of confidence mentally that I can do this. And before mm-hmm. you know it, you're rolling through the book 
and within a month you've got half the thing written. And that's how that's how you develop that mindset. That's how you create that that, that ability to just plow through and get it done. I get it. Now, do you write every day? I do write every day. I am a maniacal workaholic. I fully admit that <laughs> and embrace that. But I'm doing it for a purpose and a mission. You know, I'm I'm 44 right now. I just turned 44 last week, and, and I don't want to be working this hard when I'm um, 60. I also want to have a comfortable retirement when I'm 60, and I still have an Oxford graduate degree to pay off, so I need to earn some money. Um, so right now, I, I view my writing business as you would any kind of startup business. There's a ramp-up period for that, that's going to last X number of years to get your catalog, so to speak, created. And mm-hmm. you've got to work on developing your, your marketing apparatus, your your reader acquisition process, how you're going to build the business. Because at the end of the day, we all want to write books. But if you don't learn how to master the business aspect of being a self-published writer, you're not going to make any money in this business because you can't just throw it up on Amazon and expect people to find it. You have to figure out, well, how do I find the audience that would be receptive to this book? It's not just about throwing $1,000 or $2,000 a month at marketing. It's saying, how do I find the right audience that's going to really enjoy this kind of book as opposed to just finding a large audience in general and hoping someone likes it. And those are business things you learn over time um, and, and stuff that I've, I've leaned on from, from my own education uh, at the Oxford Business School really taught me a lot about that piece of the puzzle. And I think that is why, you know, we have excelled where we have, you know, we've only been in this business uh, full-time writing now for, we just finished our fourth year of full-time writing um, and what we achieved is, is really quite good considering when I first started this, you know, I'd been laid, laid off from one job and was waiting to find another, in between finding another one. So I had no resources when I started this. I had my, my brain and my ability to work 80 or 100 hours a week like I had in the military and in the war and said, all right, I got the time, I got the effort, I know how to do this, I'm just going to plow through and do it. And we're, you know, we're what, six years since we published our first book. We're four years into being full-time. We've got 26 books out, and we're, you know, we're already in the mid-six mid figures at this point. So we're, we're really working towards that seven-figure goal, and I anticipate probably hitting that, uh, likely not this year, but um, hopefully, hopefully by next year or certainly the year after. That's awesome. So then on, before we started talking, you talked about a... Um, the science behind bestsellers. Uh-huh. So can you touch on that a little bit? I don't, we're not, obviously not going to do a four-year program at uh, Oxford right now in this, uh, what we have left in this podcast. But No, that, that, that's easy to, to, to distill down. So aside from the pacing, which is really critical, mm-hmm. another piece is the focus. When your book is scattershot, like your themes, okay, the plot, the theme of the book, when you're scattershot all over the place, it's very it's challenging for a reader to understand what's going on and to follow along. So what you want to do is you want to have your book, your, your, your top two themes of your book should consist of at least 40% of what you're talking about. You know, in Monroe Doctrine, we're talking about machine learning and AI and, and, and that whole, you know, future warfare aspect. That's really the heavy focus. We don't have a lot of other, other divergent avenues or, or, or strings that we're pulling out in that series. And that allows it to stay, um, allows the reader to really understand what it is we're trying to achieve because we're not mm-hmm. having it all scattershot. And that's really important. And there's a, um, there's a tool I've used um, from a company called Authors AI. Um, full disclosure, I'm, you know, I, help, I helped uh, found that company, was involved in that company when we were getting that thing going. So what we have with that is a, a, an AI algorithm that looks at manuscripts. And we have hundreds and hundreds, even probably more like thousands at this point of manuscripts in there. And we can look at all the historical bestsellers. See, okay, historically, what makes Red Storm Rising or The Hunt for Red October or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Um, you know, what makes these things a bestseller? And we can find those data points. And then we can look at your book and find the similar data points and see how they, how they stack up. I think that for me is is a really unique tool that helps that helps you figure out how do I make a book a bestseller, because mm-hmm. we have so many writing aids and tools at our disposal. 
it just comes down to knowing which ones are available and how do I how do I make it work for me? And maybe it's not, maybe that wouldn't be the right one for you, but it is for someone else. And I think that's one of the, the keys as a new writer is figuring out what will work for you and making it adaptable to you and your process and not feeling compelled that you have to pigeonhole yourself into someone else's process or someone else's way of doing it or however they go about it. You know, when a lot of people get bogged down in, in I have to create a detailed outline. No, you don't. I have the loosest of outlines with my books, but we still create the most really complex stories with a very loose outline. It doesn't have to be, you know, 50 page outline for this book you're creating. You just have to have an idea and a path of how you're going to get to that idea and then execute it. Yeah, there's, I mean, I've had so many different interviews with different methods and techniques that authors have used. You got the bigs that are mega outliners and you've got the from to the extreme just pantsers yeah. but then um you know i did the interview with michael anderley he talked about beats you know he's got the various beats yeah. which is similar to what you're talking about i'm not saying that's the same thing but it's a similar type thing just uh pulse the book along so you can keep those little anchor points there to keep it on track with what you're trying to to convey like here's an easy way to do that for any author you could do this with your book right now this is the easiest way to do this when you look at your chapters, okay, so print out your chapters, however you want to do it. When you look, when you visually look, I say, okay, chapter one, how many scenes are in chapter one? Is it one scene? Is it three or four? How many scenes are in it? Now, it doesn't matter if there's one scene or five scenes. What matters is you need to know what they are. Once you know the, uh, how many scenes are in the chapter, then you say, okay, is this scene a dialogue scene or an action scene? Is the chapter a dialogue or action chapter? So that's going to help you identify the beats. So once you've got that down, you look and say, okay, is chapter one action? Great. Then the next two chapters of dialogue, um, and then action, then dialogue, dialogue, action, 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 dialogue. You paste that out. So when you can see that, that, that laid out before you on your desk, you can say, okay, I've got an action sequence with five dialogue chapters. That's too much. So what you're going to need to do is say, okay, well, do I have too much action in another part of the book? Is it possible I can move this chapter to this other section, to, to the front of the book where there's all that dialogue to help break it up and find mm -hmm. ways to weave that around? So when you see all of that, because you could write the book as plotted out as you want. At the end of the day, when it's all done, you need to take it and look at the chapters and say, okay, is this a dialogue or an action chapter? And you got to be able to paste those things out because what you don't want to have is multiple actions of multiple chapters of action because there's no chance for the reader to breathe or to digest what's going on or even understand the whole thing. They're just going from action to action to action. But at the same time, you can't have just dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. It's boring. There's not mm -hmm. enough to keep you engaged and keep you turning the pages. So you gotta find that balance. And that's where if you when the book's done or when you're writing it out, even if you're crafting your chapters, just say, okay, this is an action chapter, dialogue, dialogue, chapter, action, and you just visually do that. And that will really, really help your book a lot. That makes sense. Now, if you'd had that occur, you finish the book and all of a sudden you go, yep, whoa. That changes around. I've done that before, absolutely. Uh, whether I'm looking at the book um, or I am or I use this the AI tool and I, I look at the report and go, whoa, that is not how I thought this thing would turn out. Let me go ahead and go back to this area here, re-engineer this around, twist some things, move it, make this work here, and lo and behold, I get the result I want. Um, I, a really good example of this, I was, I was working with one of my mentees, um, uh, Matt Jackson. He's a retired Army colonel, a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and we were writing, we were, we were collaborating on a, a, an alternate Desert Storm series. And when we printed this whole thing out, we looked at it and I was like, Matt, dude, these chapters, you've got too much dialogue in the front of the book. The setup was great, interesting historical reading. But for a non-military buff, it's going to be boring. So how do we move some of these action sequences around to the front and make this a much more balanced book? And when he saw that, he saw how we laid that out and did that. It clicked. And it's been an easy thing for him to pick up and do with his books going forward now. And, and that's something I'm teaching with, you know, with the three other vets that I'm mentoring right now is, is how do you identify these things and then be able to re move your books around, move your chapters around to make it work. Um, and that's how you, it's just using some more of the science and more aspects of how do you make the book better. 
Because at the end mm -hmm. of the day, the reader is the ultimate um, determinant of whether your book's a success or not. If yeah. you write this beautiful opus and the readers read it and they go, wow, I just lost, you know, six hours of my life or 10 hours of my life. <laughs> now, that doesn't have to end your career. What you need to do, though, is you need to do an autopsy and say, okay, this sucks. What did I do wrong and how do I fix this? And then take those lessons learned from that failure and move forward with the next book. You know, when we complete a series, because we've now, we have three completed series, we have two current series that we're working on. I look at that series and say, okay, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? How do I adjust the next series we're going to start? Because what I want to do is every series, I want to be better and better and better than the previous one based on the real world results from the readers, from the consumers uh, that they said of the previous one. And that's allowed every series we write to continue to be better and better and better. Um, and then again, as a business, you're, you're fully employed. I mean, so I pay my mortgage and my steel loans. You're going to start seeing better business success from that. And ultimately, that's what's going to keep you writing for the next 10, 20, 30 years. I get it. Have you ever written short fiction? I haven't. I've thought about doing it. I have a, a short sci-fi I wrote, go figure, is almost like a horror, alien horror one, where these people are <laughs> station on, you know, on the moon. And, and it was gaming. It was a gaming project, I was calling it. And they're pulling out minerals and resources and doing samples and then some kind of like ooze comes out and you know it ends up getting on someone's you know someone's hands or whatever and starts to take them over and takes over the rest of the crew and then the other person's up in space and they're like oh my god what's happening to the people down there and they're like you know i'm not letting them on the ship and they leave you know but it didn't really explore it out too much i think it got to maybe ten thousand words and you know i thought about doing some more shorts maybe doing some things like that it's challenging because I'll, I'll admit as a business, as a business model, those are very, very difficult to make profitable. Um, right. Because there's not a lot of, you can only charge a certain amount of money for those kinds of shorts. You know, if you're charging a dollar $2.99, you're talking about making very, very little per book. And that's an opportunity cost involved in creating that. So if that took you a month to create that, how much, how much did that technically cost you? And then how are you going to recover that cost? So shorts, they're kind of fun. I would like to do them, but from a business standpoint, financially, I don't think I'm in a position yet to do that. When I have maybe five or six completed series and I have a backlist that is earning a certain dollar amount, um, at that point, I, will, I can take a little more of a risk. But until mm -hmm. I'm in a position where I can afford to take a risk like that, I need to stay focused on the, the sure bets that, that will produce, that will um, have a reader and will be able to support us. Okay, good. Now, did you ever try going traditional route and then just... We did. I've tried traditional a couple times and been turned down several times. It's ironic because both series that we were turned down on made substantial sums of money. Um, yeah. Series, they're like, no, we don't really like this. We don't, we don't see this, this. We don't see a market for this. But series made almost $400,000 the following year when I released it myself. So I begged to differ with them that there wasn't a market for it. They just didn't have the eyesight to see it. Um, yeah. Maybe it wasn't the market that they thought was there. And I'm all about finding little niches in genres that aren't being explored. Um, with our military stuff, nobody, everyone writes about the special forces, the lone wolf, the little action, things like that. Nobody writes about, you know, brigade, you know, tank brigade versus tank brigade, division versus division, the big stuff, the stuff that Tom Clancy did in Red Storm Rising. So when we did that, there were no one, there was no one else doing it. It was just us in a book that came out 30 years ago. So suddenly we were the only ones doing it. And that meant everyone was reading it who was interested in that. There was no competition. Mm -hmm. And so we've stayed in that vein with that. And I think that's worked out really well. And again, I had the same thing with the sci-fi. They're like, well, we don't really think this would be a, a good seller and whatnot. Well, you know, the three books made over made almost $200,000 on three books in a year. So I beg to differ again. I'm kind of struck by why they look at these things and they go, well, I don't really think this will do well. And it's like, well, I've got a pretty good proven record at this point of creating books that will sell and do well. What is it about that, that history you're not liking? So I, I don't know that I'll ever go traditionally published. Um, I, I may just stay with the, the indie side. Um, I'll be frank, I, I would be open to it because I would like 
to not have to handle and deal with so much of the marketing. I've become very good at it, um, but that's because I've put a lot of time into learning it. And I recognize that if I don't do this, if my uh, business isn't going to succeed and do as well. And yeah, so this last area I'd like to be able to address then is that very thing. And so you're a marketer and to make it an indie yourself, you can't survive unless you do have your wits around mm-hmm. marketing. Yep. So a little bit about that and then we'll, then we'll get into our closing questions here. Sure. Yeah, so all right, as a marketer, you can write the best book in the world, but if nobody reads it, it's not going to do well. And you can write a garbage book that everyone reads and make a fortune. So it comes down to eyeballs on books. And when you're, when you're developing your marketing campaign, you've got to have one, you got to have a good product to sell. Visually, it's got to be appealing. So that comes down to having a professional book cover that is really um, tied to that genre, very genre specific, because that's what that consumer wants. And then it comes down to the book description. A book description is supposed to be hooks, grab the reader, entice them into wanting to learn more. That is not a book synopsis. A synopsis gives the reader no reason to buy the book because you just told them all about what's going to happen. Now they know, they need to buy the book. So there's learning the differences between those. And once you've got that, then it comes down to identifying what is your audience? Who is the core audience that is going to want your book? And then figure out, well, where does this core audience reside? Are they on Pinterest? Are they on Instagram? Are they on WhatsApp, um, you know, TikTok? Are they on Facebook? Where are they? Once you figure that out, now you know where to direct your limited marketing dollars because we all have finite resources. So when I first started out, I didn't have a lot of money for marketing, so I had to be very targeted on where I was going. So initially I was using Facebook. And then as I've grown and developed and Facebook has become less effective for my genre and audience, I transitioned very heavy to Amazon. And now it's about understanding the keywords and what's going after on how to, how to grab uh, the right audiences with that. And so even when you're marketing on Amazon, as an indie author, there are two, there are two functions here, right? There's Kindle Unlimited and there are unit sales. So if you're exclusive to Amazon, meaning you're not wide, you're not anywhere else, you're only available on Amazon, then you're in Kindle Unlimited. And that means you're going to get paid when people download your book and they do a page swipe. So every time they swipe the page, you're getting paid a fractional of a penny or whatever it is. Uh, which again is why short stories are very hard to make profitable in Kindle Limited because you don't make you make like pennies on a book. But when you have that, you you've got to understand this is where all the indie authors fail is they don't understand that there are still two audiences you're trying to target. There are the Kindle Unlimited readers, people who are in that membership who only read books in Kindle Unlimited, and then there are paid consumers, and there are different audiences. So if your ads are only being directed and aimed at a Kindle Unlimited reader, you're only going to get largely Kindle Unlimited um, page reads on your books as opposed to sales. Whereas if you focus on, on the reader who is buying the books, you're going to get a lot more book purchases as opposed to book downloads. So a lot of guys and, and people in, in that are writer, that are self, indie writers when you ask them that, they'll really they'll tell you that most of their income comes from between 70 to 80% of their money is from Kindle Unlimited, meaning people are downloading the book, reading it, and they're getting paid on page swipes. That is a long-term unsustainable business to be in, though, because every year that percentage drops every year uh, because of the number of people who are uh, number of authors signing up for it in comparison to the number of readers signing up for it continues to dwindle. So you've got to figure out, how do I find the paying readers? So in my case, what I do I target uh, traditional published authors, traditionally published books. And the reason I do that is because the Mark Camerons, the, you know, the, the Kyle Mills readers, you know, that read the Vince Lynn and, and, and the Tom Clancy genre style books, they're accustomed to paying $14.99 for an ebook or $24.99 for a print book. So if I'm targeting them and my book is $7.99 and my print book is $4.99. I'm substantially cheaper than them, but I'm also a lot higher than most self-published writers. But that's allowed me to have my, my income balance where most of my revenue still is actually purchases and not Kindle Unlimited downloads, even though I, my books are in Kindle. And that's a very unique strategy that I don't think a lot of um, self-published authors recognize or are caught on to. Um, 
when they're when they're driving into the marketing realm because it is very challenging. This is challenging. I spend probably uh, I probably spend 20, 20 hours a week or so at least on understanding the marketing, looking at the trends, the data, figuring out where I need to shift resources, where I need to focus on, um, and that's time that takes away from writing. You know, so if I spend uh, twenty hours on reading and research, twenty hours on marketing, well, that's forty hours right there, and then I've got you know however many hours I want to devote to writing, so that may be another forty right there. So that's an eighty-hour you know work week. It sounds like a lot, but when you spread it across uh, seven days, I don't have a commute to go anywhere. Um, I can have my two-year-old come in and get a hug, and I can take a break and watch twenty minutes of Paw Patrol with her and go back to work. It's not so bad. You know, it sounds terrible, but when you add in the interruptions and the little little breaks you take, it's, it's manageable and it's not as bad as it sounds. Well, that's great. Well, that's really good. That's really good data because like getting how you do it and then also the managing of your own marketing actions and research actions versus your writing. It, it's the whole package. And if somebody's that, that um, field of dreams is not, a legitimate um, scenario to anticipate. You put it through, they will come. Yeah, you, no, you they can't won't. depend on luck. You need to go create your own luck. And we are so blessed to live in the time frame we are in with the technologies and tools that are available to us because we have that opportunity. If I wanted to be a writer 20 years ago, this would not have been possible. I wouldn't be a writer if I was living 20 years ago. I wouldn't have had access to Kindle, to, to Amazon self-publishing platform or mm -hmm. the marketing tools that are available. I just wouldn't have. And that is an, is an unprecedented door that's been made open to all of us who are aspiring to be writers and want to do this full time. Because there are plenty of us writers who are very good in this business, who make a large chunk of money in this business on Amazon, who have been continually rejected by traditionally published, by the publishing houses and by agents. And, but we would have never been able to sell these books and share these ideas and, and have these, these awesome careers if we didn't have this opportunity that Amazon's given us and pursued it, you know, right. willing to take that risk because this is a risk. I'm betting the farm every time I start a new series that the reader is going to enjoy this series and like it. And if I bet wrong, if I do this wrong, I jeopardize, you know, my future going forward. My business will survive. And we made a massive, big critical flaw in um, one of our book series when we had this killer series, we transitioned to a new one. And I really screwed that up. I had the wrong book cover. It read for it read as a nonfiction as opposed to a fiction. And I just did it wrong. And that series hurt us really bad for about 18 months. And we, you know, I had to plug, I had to continue to move through it and try to salvage this thing market-wise because we had a 50% income drop from that series. That's hard to eat as a business and survive. Mm -hmm. We managed to work through it. We learned the mistake. We did not make that mistake subsequently. And the next series going forward have recovered nicely from it. But these are lessons you learn along the way and yeah. failure is the best teacher. So. Don't let that stop you. Just learn from it and don't make the same mistake twice or a third time. Awesome. So now for someone, I mean, I can tell you what I read is, as a recommended uh, to, as James Rasson uh, primers, but what would you recommend for someone who's not familiar with your writing to, as a start? For me, I would always recommend our most current works because honestly, this is something you just get better with over time. So. Uh -huh. The, the, the type of stories and stuff we've written are obviously better now than they were six or seven years ago. I've written 26 sure. books. So I would tell people, if you really like the thriller genre and you like the high-tech aspects and AI and looking at that, I would, I would go with the Monroe Doctrine. If sci-fi is really your thing, then our, our Into the Stars, uh, you know, Rise of the Republic, that series, the Into the Stars is book one of that one, I, I would look at that. And one thing I would tell a lot of the readers is, this is a conscious choice on our end. We don't put any sexual content and profanity in our books. That's a that's a choice that we. Yeah, and we, I really like that a lot. Yeah, we, we've done that. Now that does not mean they are non-violent. They are very they are very intense, um, but they're not overly so either. Uh, everything has a purpose, and I believe that language has to have a purpose if you're going to use language and as well as details. 
No, that's one thing that was very much appreciated is that there isn't the profanity yeah. or the sex. You know, it's just, just it alludes to it and yeah. it obviously happens, but it's not gratuitous. It's not moving the story along. If it doesn't move the story along, it should be cut because the focus is the story, not the scene. Um, yeah. And the other thing I would say is if, if there's any people or, or vets or anyone else that's struggling with PTSD, though, I tell you, look at our other book, Interview of the Terrorist, because I'm pretty open about that. The things we had to see and do doing interrogating terrorists was, you know, that was, a, that was a tough job. And that's hard. When you go, like I was telling, you know, my last day in Iraq, I'm sitting here, I've got hours to get out of this place, and we are getting the crap bombed out of us. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I just survived 556 days of this hellhole. I do not want to get blown up my last few hours in this place. And 96 hours after that event, I'm walking around in the mall in Tampa, Florida. Now, how does your brain compute and, and go with that? I mean, how do you go from, I might die from these explosions and bombs going off to four day, less than four days later, you're walking around in the mall in, in Florida, people are getting a Starbucks and going on like life is normal. That's a challenge. And I struggled with that for years. And we, we have some good resources in that book and talk a lot about that challenge and what that was like. Okay, well, thank you very much for that too. So uh, how does somebody find you on the, uh, is it preferably on social media or website or how does somebody find you? You can find us on Facebook. We have a, we have a good uh, Facebook page on there. So you can find uh, James Rizone, Miranda Watson on there. Um, our reader groups are there. And then we have uh, frontlinepublishinginc.com is our, our website that we use. And on there, I've got, you know, both my mentees that I'm working with right now that are active series, their books that they're, they've written in with me on because I, as a mentorship, I'm taking them in with me and saying, okay, you're going to work on this book with me. I'm going to show you how this is done. And this really gets them in the weeds and now they get to see it. And then I show them how we market this stuff because my end state is not to develop a bunch of co-authors that just sit right with me. My end state is to teach these guys how to become independent businesses themselves. So they will work with me on one series. I will co-author with them on another to walk them to make sure they fully understand it. And then the third one, they're on their own. And I'm going to teach them and set them up with how to be able to do that. Um, and that's my way of being able to address the, the veteran crisis that we have going on. Wow, that's amazing. Well, this has been great having this uh, chat with you. It's, um, as I knew what happened, we blew through this hour and then some in no time. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Rise of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Rise of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, James. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on, and you know, I look forward to talking with you guys later. Great.